Hey all, this is Sean and welcome to If You've Come This Far. Uh, this is a space, a podcast where my friend Chris and I simply aim to have authentic conversations with interesting people about the, what they do to make life more fulfilling and more impactful. This week, we're talking with Dr. Susan Engel, who is a, a professor at Williams College, um, someone that I ran into a long time ago. We talked about that in the podcast. Uh, and the attraction for me with Susan uh, was her focus on curiosity. But Susan does a lot more than that. So, Chris, maybe tell the tell the listeners about uh, Susan Engel and kind of what our conversation was all about. Yeah, well, I mean, thanks to you for for bringing Susan into the mix. Um, you tell the story of when you were first, um, or when you first became aware of Susan and her work uh, in the podcast. So I won't, um, I won't spoil that. But as you mentioned, Susan, senior lecturer in, in psychology, senior faculty fellow at a at a at a, a, a uh, in a program called Rice Center for Teaching. Um, th- this is all at Williams College. Um, Sean, U.S. News and World Report and Forbes both rank Williams College uh, the same number among liberal arts universities. Mm-hmm. Do you know what number that is? One or two. It's one. Yeah. 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 Which is not to say that everyone should 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 send their kid to Williams because it's not <laughs> the right school for everybody. Right. Right. But my point there is like I was. You just know there's a lot of intellectual ferment going on there, and and there's good research. And Susan is is uh, the author of a lot of that good research, and and she was and she's really right in our wheelhouse because on on several fronts because her background in psychology and develop, developmental psychology, especially around teaching and learning um, and education, which is sort of my professional life, um, and you know I would say okay, so so pedigree amazing research phenomenal she's written i don't know somewhere around 10 books i think the most famous or the most well-known book is a book called the hungry mind which is mm-hmm. the origins of curiosity in childhood uh, yeah. which i think you've read sean yeah. um so, so obviously super impressive but here's the thing that like it, it's one thing to be so smart and so good at your job but to also be so gracious and lovely at the same delightful. time, De- delightful, just delightful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. loved her, uh, loved her, loved her, and um, and we left this conversation with an excuse to get her back on. Do you remember what that was? Yeah, you're dying. You're you're you. Your <laughs> mind is already rolling on when she's gonna on when she's gonna be back. Yeah, she. I mean, she's gonna talk about a class that she's teaching for seniors called "Suckers and Scammers." I mean, they're the class. Anyway, we're going to get we're going to get back. We're talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. But we we covered a lot of really interesting ground, at least from my perspective with Susan. Um, Susan has also researched memory. Yeah. Right. So uh, another reason to get her on to to figure out why we can't uh, remember a damn thing anymore, you know. Um, such as age, right? Such as age. Yeah. Anyway, Susan was a blast. An absolute blast, and I, yeah, I, I hope uh, I hope the listeners like her as much as we do, and uh, you know, stay tuned because she's uh, likely will be coming back because Chris cannot let this not let this go. If he was anywhere around Massachusetts, he'd be sitting in on that. What do they Mark, call it when you? What do they call when you sit in on a class? Um, oh, you're, you're auditing the class. Auditing, right? Yeah, 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 you, yeah. Yes, you would be auditing for sh- no doubt. 
I would I'd fucking pay to be in that class. Oh yeah, Lisa would Lisa would be in. That's, that's right up her alley too. It would yeah. turn into like a book club where we would yeah. get together. It would, I would I would study harder for that class than any class I've ever taken. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get started. Here. All, right. All right, here's Susan. <laughs> Chris, wait, wait, before you go into that, how you don't have any hair to do that with in the morning? What do you mean? You're you're looking in the mirror and your hair's all over so the place. So for the record, if it were up to me, I would shave it all off because it's a lost cause. But yeah. my daughters and my wife won't let me do that for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think there's a d- little bit of a different fashion sense that I have and they have. <laughs> so I, I, I trust their fashion sense more than I trust my own, I suppose. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah I'm so psyched to talk to you, Susan. Thank you, Chris. So nice to meet you both. So we have uh, so we have a lot to talk about. Um, <laughs> and and so let me just say that as a, as a way of introduction, I went to a what's called a Glen Ellen parents um, talk in Glen, at Glenbard East High School. It's about 25 miles outside of Chicago five years ago. And I went because I am curious and there was a woman there that was going to be talking about her book the hungry mind um talking about curiosity and so i went and for five years susan engel's been living in my head um this whole concept of curiosity and as i told her when we had like a, a quick preview i said um i've been using this fact that what happens is before kids go to school they ask like 100 questions a day and once they get to school they ask none and, and, you know, I'm taking that exactly from the talk and I'm like, I'm not even sure if it's accurate, but that's, that's the stat or that's the data point that I keep talking about. Um, so we're going to, we're going to get to that. Um, and so I had to reach out because we have come up with these men living suggestions um, for living more fully. And one of them is to live curiously. And so um I thought it'd be great to have you because I'm so impressed with your work and to talk about curiosity with us. So um, thanks for coming to join us. My pleasure. Great topic. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's just funny. To my office to, for a meeting, um, a young colleague at Williams, and she had a bag that had the word curious embossed on it. I was like, oh, my God, we were meant to work together. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I, and I go back to, Susan, did you watch the show Ted Lasso? No, but I know I know that actor, so. Yeah, that, that in one of the episodes, he quotes uh, Walt Whitman, uh, a four-word quote that says, be curious, not judgmental. That may be a little bit different sort of angle on curiosity, but uh, but but I kind of was assuming that you would have that printed on your bag at this point, um, given what you've researched and everything else. The other thing I was going to say is, Susan, I also know that there was, at least for a moment, you researched memory. And so I'm I'm wondering if you remember this Glen Ellen uh, talk or being in the Chicago area, speaking <laughs> directly to Sean. <laughs> well, I do remember being there because I'm realizing, you know, not long after that, my visits to give those kinds of talks ended mm. COVID. Mm. So, and now yeah. I'm visiting schools all over the country for a different project. But yes, I, I do remember that. Um, but I, I don't, Sean, did we actually meet on that evening? Uh, no, I don't think we did. No, and and there was I don't know maybe twenty people there for the talk, um, but no, I don't think we we actually did. So, gotcha. Gotcha. yes, Chris, I do remember. 
<laughs> Although I have given a lot of talks on yes. curiosity and visited a lot of schools, so sometimes they blend together a little. I figured they're 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 usual events for you, right? And a so bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Less, yeah. maybe less for the more. record, I probably wouldn't have remembered, but well, yeah. I'm glad you did. Um, yes, me too. You know, it's interesting about curiosity because when you bring it up in any informal setting, like at a dinner or with family or friends, everyone thinks that it's a familiar notion. Like mm -hmm. everyone, and when you ask parents, do you want your kids to be curious? Or if you ask teachers, do you think it's important for kids to be curious? I, I've never met, at least in this society, I've never met an adult who doesn't say, well, of course, like no mm -hmm. duh, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, so it takes something to get people to realize it's not that easy. That, that it's not it's not inevitable that people are curious and no we're not all equally curious nor do we all use our curiosity in the same way it, it takes it, it seems obvious at first it seems self-evident um so i'm that's why i'm glad you remember it sean because mm -hmm. getting people to think oh that's not just obvious that's uh is for me uh an achievement in and of itself yeah Susan, um, I have a friend, more accurately, it's the brother of, of one of my best friends, who's also a professor at Williams. Um, uh, my, uh, his name is Gage McQueenie. I think he's on I sabbatical. Know, right? Do you really? That's yeah. funny. It's a uh, small college. I know. I know. Well, I'm yeah. Over about 30, under 30 now. But uh, yeah. Well, and, and my wife had, has had, my wife and I both work in education for a long time. She was a higher ed uh, executive recruiter. And so um, even though when I grew up, I knew nothing about colleges really at all. Um, I it is deeply planted in my brain right now that Williams is like the one of, and I'll just be conservative there. One of the preeminent universities, liberal arts colleges in the, in the, in the country. Um and I know that you've had you've gone through different sort of areas of research. I could you could you like first start out by telling us like what what is your existence right now at Williams? Like are you are you are you still teaching at all? Um, I know um, the books keep flowing out of you, um, but like what's your current research interest? Yeah. Are are you teaching? And so and tell me about your role as um, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna botch your your title. Um, but you, you were involved in, is it teacher preparation or? Worried nothing you say could be that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't know me. Uh, <laughs> you don't know me. I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll um, jump right in. Uh, so yes, I've been teaching at Williams a long time. I'm in the psychology department. I'm a developmental psychologist. Um, and so all my life, my primary focus of research has to do with how young children develop. I'm particularly interested in how their thinking develops. That's just because that's what always grabbed me and, and what I learned to do in graduate school. Um, so yes, I teach, and I'll tell you a bit about the courses I teach in a minute. Um, I also direct the program in teaching. That's the thing you were thinking about. So that's a mm -hmm. program here at Williams for students who are interested in teaching and wanna learn more about it while they're undergrads. Um, it's not a pre-professional program. We're not sending them out with certification to teach. We think they need graduate school to do that. Um, but we, I think we do an awesome job of uh, teaching them about education from a liberal arts perspective. That is connecting it to the other things they're learning, 
teaching them how to think well about education, and they get field experience. Right now, I'm teaching my advanced seminar on learning and teaching, and every student in that class spends six to eight hours a week in a local classroom, and then spends three hours with me, in fact, this afternoon, thinking about that work, relating it to research, um, and, and broad, more broadly topics in education. So I do that. And then on top of that, right now, uh, we've just started uh, uh, something called the Joseph Rice Center for Teaching at Williams. I'm really excited about it. It's a center to focus on faculty teaching and to help us as faculty keep getting better at our work as professors. Mm. Um, I'm super happy about it. I, I've wanted it to happen for a long time. Um, and I'm the senior fellow. I'm, I'm involved in that and sort of helping to get it off the ground. Um, and it's a, I'm no surprise, I'm as interested in how to be a good college teacher as I am in helping people be good K-12 teachers. Mm -hmm. So it's a really, for me, it's a super fun project. Um, I'll say just two more things about that. So uh, yeah, so right now I'm teaching this course, my advanced seminar on learning and teaching. I also teach a, a more introductory course about education. I also teach a course about children's minds, which is more straight on developmental psychology. Um, and right now, so we have a senior seminar for psych majors, and I, I would take me too long to describe to you what, what that is, the senior seminar, but five different faculty in psychology each have a section of 12 students, about 12 students. We all have the same overall goal in that course. It's our capstone course for our psych majors. They take it in their senior year, but our topic can be whatever we want as long as it meets the educational goals. And mine this year is super fascinating and fun and a brand new experience for me. The course is called Suckers and Scammers. So it's <laughs> way outside my usual area. It's not about children per se, although some of the work we read is developmental psychology. Um, but I, I had to mention that because it's part of what I'm doing this semester. That's really fun. And then I'm doing a big new project in my own research that I'm I'm going to be writing a book about. And that is about early education okay so That's first of all menu. that okay and i have a million questions to follow up with which i had to limit um because sean why because of, uh because i have some too <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i was yeah. gonna say sean, sean tries his best to keep me in line um you can't leave us hanging with this suckers and scammers yeah i knew uh, you were going like right right like tell us more about that just you okay. know so just quickly because I don't want anyone to get the wrong impression about how we do things at Williams. The goal is to get our seniors who have just spent several years doing a deep dive into some specific area of psychology. They've worked with a neuroscientist or a social psychologist or a clinical psychologist, and they've really become like some, they've developed some expertise in one area of empirical psychology. Um, at the end, in their senior year, we wanna bring them back out and say, you know, all these subfields connect together. And, and to understand anything important in the world from a psychological perspective, you need to connect developmental psychology with social psychology. And we want them to learn that psychological research answers big pressing questions in the world. And finally, we want them to, not all of them will go on to be you know, academic research psychologists. So we want them to develop some capacity to use what they've learned in psychology mm -hmm. in their life, no matter what they're doing after they leave mm -hmm. So those are the broad aims of the course. In that context, my course this time, it's really, it's a luxury. 
it's the it's the prize of getting really old. You get to teach a fun course sometimes that you really don't really have much business teaching. Um, I just for years have been totally transfixed by these very sort of public stories of of scamming. Like Bernie Madoff was the first one. I just mm. did not get enough. I kept thinking, what was he thinking? What was he thinking? Right. Mm -hmm. Then I was very interested in Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, Theranos. Theranos. Yes. Yeah. I read the book yeah. Bad Blood by John Carreyrou, and I could not put it down. Yes. I was like, this is a psychologist buffet. Like totally. Yeah. yeah. So the course basically every few weeks we read about some very interesting case of scamming equally interesting to me and my students is what were other people thinking like when george right. fell yes. homes, what was yeah. he thinking yeah so that's yeah. the course so we read one of those case studies a book we see a video a film whatever we do for each story or case and then we think what are the psychological what how can psychological research help us figure out what was going on and um, what kinds of, what lines of, of research would help us think better about this? And the students have been fantastic at figuring out what are the areas of, of you know, empirical work that could help us answer our, our very human questions, like what were they thinking, or what did they have in mind, or when did they realize that they were wrong, or when did George Schultz begin to, you know, the psychology of it is what we're yeah. interested in. Yeah. Um, and uh, we also studied, we read a book called um, Going Clear by Lawrence Wright about Scientology. Yes, yeah, know it. And I will say that in these cases, at least more than once, it came up that we didn't all see it the same way. And I said in the beginning of the part about Going Clear, I said, is anybody here a Scientologist or related to a Scientologist? Because mm -hmm. we don't want to, we don't want to be so cavalier in these conversations that we 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 overlook the fact that any one of us could believe in something that someone else sees as a scam. Uh, Lawrence Wright's son, Gordon, is a, a friend and, and he used to work for me. And, I, and I've talked to him about having Lawrence on the podcast before. Lawrence is an amazing guy. So years ago, he wrote a book about a very infamous case of a policeman in um, um, in the state of Washington who became convinced that he had committed satanic ritual abuse against his daughters. The book is called Remembering Satan. And it's an amazing book. And it features the work of, and then the involvement of two very well-known psychologists. Um, oh my God. Um, I'm going to forget her name, even though she's a very important researcher in, in children's memory. It'll come back to me. Um, and another guy named Richard Offshee. And I love that book so much. And I actually wrote to Lawrence Wright at the, after I read it because I thought he got one thing wrong in his book about Freud. And I was, you know, I published books <laughs> myself, but I was absolutely starstruck because he wrote back to me and then he included a, um, an acknowledgement to me in the subsequent issue of the book because talk about curious and open-minded. Yeah, yeah, yeah of my comment and i i'm still starstruck by him because of that i was like you you listen to what i said Thank <laughs> <you>. <laughs> um okay so sean i'm gonna turn it over to you but i'm just gonna say right now that we need to have another episode with you susan about this this class itself about i'd love to talk about that i mean because i'm yeah. all into that okay, okay. 
This episode of If You've Come This Far is being brought to you by Half Acre Beer Company, makers of Daisy Cutter Pale Ale and many other fine ales and lagers. Visit them at their brewery located at 2050 West Balmoral Avenue in Chicago's Bowmanville neighborhood. And now back to the conversation. So, so there's three things that come up in, in, in just that piece. So first of all, you know, in teacher development, I mean, Chris used to work for the National Teachers Residency. Wow. Um, uh, cool. And so you were doing, you were doing teacher development, right, Chris? I mean, basically is what you were doing. I just left there six and a half chief years. operating officers. Yeah. yeah. The national center for teacher residencies. And, and, yeah. and we believe that, you know, that uh, a residency type preparation program was, is the right answer for a job that is incredibly hard. I love the fact that you're introducing people to the profession of teaching. And I wonder if you start by saying, um, first of all, this is a hard ass job, you know, uh, do not enter this job lightly, but yeah. So I, I am in that world still. That's fantastic. The the second piece um, and it is the whole idea of the development of the educational system. I mean, you're involved in education, teaching teachers. Chris is still in the educational space. And, you know, because I love the hungry mind so much and um, the whole concept of what happens in that classroom, um, you talk about the fact that the educational system and teachers in particular can really kind of squelch curiosity. And, and, and so, you know, the concept of how, how, how do we ensure and the rigidness of it, you talk about the rigidness of it versus the openness of it. So how do we ensure that at some level, the right kind of environment can be implemented to, to foster um, inquiry? Great question. My favorite question in the world. <laughs> well, first, I'll just say one thing about one, one thing you said, I want to amend a little bit. Yeah. Yes, teachers can unwittingly squelch curiosity, but you know, my research suggests that just as a big part of the time, it's not teachers per se, it's a system that's oriented towards a very different goal. And sure. so teachers who who would wouldn't want to be squelching curiosity and and are skilled, warm, you know, caring, good teachers, thoughtful people are squelching it inadvertently some of the time because right. they're trying to meet other goals that are set for them by their school principal, their school superintendent, the Department of Ed, and the national sort of implicit emphasis on, uh, you know, I wrote a book about this called The End of the Rainbow, about th that our school system is oriented towards making, build, making kids who will make money. And yeah, right. money's your goal in education, okay, fine, but you can't, you're not going to, I don't think that's fine, but okay, maybe it's, that's what society chooses as the goal of education. But then it's very hard to, at the same time, encourage curiosity in the way that I think it should be encouraged because, and it's ironic because, so this is a little complicated. Part of the answer to your question, Sean, is that actually if, educators and the whole sort of, I don't know what to call it, it's more than an institution. If our view of education in this country took seriously the fact that kids learn a lot more when they want to know something, mm -hmm. if you really took that seriously and you thought, okay, the major thing here is to get kids to want to learn by being curious. Because if they're curious, they're very good learners. Watch yeah. any kid try to learn something they really want to learn. And every kid who's within the broad range of typical development, 
So a broad range of kids, not every kid, not every single kid, because some kids have disabilities that, that make mm -hmm. this not true. But for the broad majority of kids, um, if you watch them do something they want to do, get a tower that goes as high as their chin, climb up to get a cookie that they can't reach, mm -hmm. uh, build a space rocket, tell a story that will attract the attention of the people around them, whatever it is, know everything there is to know about dinosaurs. Um, I, I have a grandson who's four who has become obsessed with learning every kind of snake there is in the world. And he's learning every kind of snake there is in the world because he wants to. So if we understood that that was the sine qua non of the educational system, we wouldn't have to shelve the goal of becoming knowledgeable or becoming competent or becoming capable of doing well at work. But we would see that as the outcome, the, the sort of sequelae of, of wanting to learn. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I think in our society, the minute you talk about, you use the phrase wanting to learn, there are people all over the place who think, oh, she just wants to do whatever makes kids happy. She's just soft-hearted. It's just a floofy idea of kids. It's sentimental. That's all very well, but we need them to get good at things. And I'm not that sentimental. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've worked hard all my life. My three sons all work very, very hard. I, I know we depend on a society of people who contribute and are autonomous and can help others. But it's just a question of how you make that happen. And, and in my view, we're missing something that comes naturally to all, virtually every child, which is so, the desire to know new things. So with, the, so with that in mind, you, uh, I read constantly about uh, what we went through in the pandemic that kids are behind. Yeah. And and it just strikes me when I hear that. It's like behind what? Oh, I mean, I, I, I get I, I, I get it's I get it's the system that we're talking about. But it doesn't I mean, in human development and being a human being, they're behind. I do, can I, how do you can you shed some light on that? I mean, your reaction to that. I as well? Try. well, I have a funny story about that. So a first grade teacher that I know very well, she's a wonderful teacher. And she said to me a year ago, we're panicking. Parents are panicking. My first graders are so behind. And I said to her, behind what? Yeah. And she looked blank for a minute because we were not used. I'll tell you a little story about that in a minute, but we're not used to thinking that way within yeah. the system. And then she said, behind the goals we set for kids mm. and that we have yeah. set for kids. So, so, and it's fair enough that as a big complex nation, it's reasonable to say, look, let's all agree that we're going to hope that kids are readers by about the time that they're seven. And that's reasonable because that way, if you have see whole communities or schools or classrooms where kids aren't getting to be readers, you can say, what's going wrong here? The trouble is we all live through a pandemic, so we know what's going wrong. They missed out on, they missed out on about a year or two years of, of in-person learning. And while they were missing out on that, they were being bombarded by other very dramatic problems. Yeah. Um, disease, fear, death, parenting that wasn't the kind of parenting they were used to so lack so many things so i just i have nothing really to add sean to what you said except we need to reset our goals because the first thing we need to do is get kids 
back to feeling okay so that they can learn. The idea that kids can learn even when they don't feel okay mm. is just mm. wrong-headed psychologically, mm. misguided. So our first goal should be to get kids, and I would say this is true at the college level too, to get everyone back to where they feel enough, okay enough to want to learn and then to get them to want to learn and then to give them stuff to learn. But if that's the order it has to be in. And as you said, if this whole, gen, you know, if there's a whole cohort of kids who learn to read when they're eight or nine, instead of when they were, you know, first grade teachers everywhere are going to shudder if they listen to this because they want them to learn to read by the time they're, <laughs> but okay, so say it's seven now or eight, so be it. Uh, yeah. There's no way to shortcut that process. Um, and I will tell you, just going back to what you said, so I'm doing a big project now. I'm visiting kindergartens across the country. For any listeners out there, mm -hmm. I'm trying very hard to get invitations to kindergartens in the western part of the country, and it's not that easy. So I, I'm looking for invitations. But um, but wherever I go, when I ask kindergartners, kindergarten teachers, what are your goals? Um for the for your students at the end of this year they love to answer it but they say they often say to me huh no one's asked me that yeah and so when you say to people behind what falling behind what part of it is because we're not in the habit of inviting teachers to think about what their own goals are for their students mm -hmm. but i have a question for you regarding following up on Sean's question around this pandemic um, in, in the sort of intellectual ferment that happens, I know at Williams college, have any of you all ever discussed um, what good may be coming from the pandemic? And maybe that's a question for like Angela Duckworth in terms of our kids building greater per rigor or persistence or grit. Um, but surely you know, we have nothing to compare it with, right? Like we, we can't be like, oh, compared to the last pandemic, um, because nothing yeah. was was ever quite like this. But but yeah, have you all ever had that conversation? No, no. <laughs> it's so interesting. I mean, when when we first so I've been doing in-person teaching all the way through. We sent our students home in March of whenever that first year was, 20, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. But, <laughs> Who, who can recall? Yeah, before time, my kids keep saying. Um, but I went back to in-person teaching the minute we were allowed, we were given that option. And what I can say about many students, at least in the first year we were all back on campus, is that they felt a kind of, and so did I, a kind of gratitude for being here. Nobody took it for granted. I don't feel that as much from the students now. I think they're quite stressed. Uh, and the little, the hunt, there was a sort of gratitude phase in like 21, and now it's 22, and, and less gratitude and more stress. What I have learned from it is, and, and somebody's going to be mad at me for saying this, but oh well. Um, what I have learned is that all the excitement about the possibilities of online learning that people have been saying for 10 years, um, I if they thought this was a chance to show that we actually know how to do it, to me, this was a chance to discover that human beings need to be with other human beings. 
And when you're under the age, well, I don't know what, I would say it's true for everybody at every age, but certainly in the K-12 world, um, it's true. And my best anecdote about this comes from a colleague who said when kids were still learning at home with Zoom, her kid was about nine, and she was in a little learning pod doing her Zoom things with her best friend who was in another house. So they were separated, but they did get to be on Zoom together doing their projects. And the little girl said to her mother, I hate this. She said, and, and her mom said, but you get to work with whatever the other little girl's name is, Kelly, don't you? I mean, you're doing stuff together. She said, yeah, but I can't even smell her. Oh, I, oh. That's such a great way of putting it because it's not fanciful. It's really human. Like yeah. you, you need to be around other people. That's heartbreaking. Um, I mean, I, I would. I don't think we would have a debate. I do think that there is a role. Like, if you've ever needed to brush up on calculus or whatever, you can go to Sal Khan, who's one of the great instructors uh, I've ever witnessed. Uh, and so, I think there is a role to play with that because he can deliver that curriculum better than probably ninety-eight percent of teachers out there. Um, but, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm totally with you on the human connection part. And that is a heartbreaking story. Um, yeah. so, so, but back to the question, glass half full, at least we can say that we've learned some hard lessons and maybe we all gained a little perspective. Yeah. So there's a little bit of upside for the listeners. For the listeners, Susan wasn't exactly agreeing with Chris on that. I was thinking but, about it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think I think we'll have to discover over time. I think people are so eager to either forget it, the pandemic, including me, like some of the things that I thought I would. I mean, I remember just this is a very silly example, except I think it's a metaphor for the whole thing. I remember saying a year and a half ago, I'm never going to not wash my hands again in my life when I get home from work like that. Or I'm never going to take for granted the pleasure of walking into a restaurant without a mask on. And I did, I don't wash my hands every time I get home from work. And I do sometimes walk into a restaurant and forget to be grateful that I'm so lucky I get to be in a, without a mask on. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and so I take that as an example of the way in which I'm not sure, I'm not sure yet of what people learned. I also think because of the, edu the, the education piece is true in other ways too we're always all in such a rush in our in our whole society so we're rushing to get yeah. back to whatever we thought normal was right. and the idea that we should change our idea of what that is i think that doesn't come easily to yeah people. yeah well but you know where my head goes though both of you it's like you think about our grandparents who lived through the great depression and you think about the greatest generation that lived through the war those 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 generations were always able to call on that perspective and be like oh god at least we're not at war in in germany right or or at least you know we're, we have food to eat and obviously that's not everybody so i guess i'm just being super optimistic and vulnerable okay. with you too and thinking maybe our kids will come out of this and be like hey you know this this sucks i saw a great quote the other day someone sent it to me that said it wasn't a quote but it was like you know who's having a really hard time right now literally everybody yeah. So be kind. Right. And so uh, I think that's uh, that I guess that's uh, I'm just going to reiterate my hope and then that's shut very up. Nice. <laughs> well, and I have no research. I have no research to back this up at all. But uh, being a big advocate of technology, whether it is effective in, you know, as an educational tool, 
compared to in person. I th- I I think it what has come out of it that's positive is it's augmented our ability to connect beyond having to be in person. It's made. I mean, I, back in the ni- early nineties, I was. Uh, involved in video technology, and and we're always wondering, okay, what's the killer app for for video? And you know, you'd think it would be education, or at least I did. You'd think it'd be healthcare, mm-hmm. and it never really caught on. It, it took a pandemic for the technology to be, I think, more acceptable. And so for us in men living, I mean, I'm connecting with hundreds of men across the world by utilizing this platform, who and some are connecting with each other who may not have relationships and friendships that are being cultivated through the technology so it's not it's 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 not a replacement but it it i think it can augment nicely how we can engage with one another i agree i would just say as a developmental psychologist that what works for grown-ups is not always the same thing as what works. Mm -hmm. and there are reasons why we study development to try to understand what's unique to five-year-olds and nine-year-olds and how they are qualitatively fundamentally different in the way they experience the world than older people even than slightly older people and so I guess I take that very seriously that what Mm -hmm. what five-year-olds need and what they need to flourish is not the same as what 30-year-olds need to flourish. Susan when you're in your course in your coursework where you introduce college students to the profession of teaching do, do you make those distinctions? Because it, it, the difference between teaching a high school junior and a preschooler um, is ripe with the sort of the fundamental differences that you just alluded to. Yeah. How, how do you, how do you? Well, so my introduction to psych, my introduction to education course boringly has the number psych 272. That's college for you. Um, we start <laughs> by reading some major models of development. Um, and, you know, so we read Freud, which my students, many of them have a have a bad impression of Freud. Uh, and I try to change that and persuade them that he he had some amazing insights. And so they're not. And we read Piaget, who is really in some ways the, the grandfather of understanding how thinking develops in the first, let's say, 12 years. Um, we read uh, we read about behaviorism because honestly, most teachers, most of the time, because they don't get to study developmental psychology very deeply, without knowing it, they're using a behaviorist model that you reward good behavior and you mm-hmm. punish bad behavior. And and so I want them to read about behaviorist psychology. And behaviorism actually has no theory of development in it. It's the idea is you just acquire more and more stimulus response connections. I want them to encounter that so they can see how it does and doesn't fit with these other models of development. And then we read a few others. I won't, I won't bury you in um, theory names, but, but the idea of that part of that course is that every time you interact with a kid or plan some curriculum with them or, or tell them why they're good or they're bad or set up a corner of the room for them or whatever it is you're doing, whether you know it or not, you're working within some idea some implicit idea about how children develop and if you're an educator you better know what your implicit mm-hmm. right? you better make mm-hmm. your implicit ideas explicit and think about how supported they are by research so some of these theories are better supported with evidence than others but they also help you notice different things if you're thinking from a freudian perspective you're thinking about the unconscious 
desires and needs that a kid is fulfilling and how those are different at different stages of development. If you're thinking of, from a Piagetian perspective, you're thinking about how a child is making sense of the world around them, uh, it, you know, cognitively. So that they may sound a little boring to some listeners, but the point is that to be a good teacher, you have to at least know what developmental mm -hmm. lens you're using. And so, yes, very much. We talk about that a lot. So when, so when you talk, um, speaking of development, um, so Richard Reeves from Brookings uh, just wrote a book called A Boys and Men. And in the book, he proposes, one of the things he proposes is that boys, uh, what he calls red shirt a year um, before going, before going to school, because they're, the theory being that their brains don't develop as quickly as girls. Um, a reaction to that? I don't have a knowledgeable enough, I don't have enough knowledge uh, to react to that. So I don't know what the research says actually about brain development, gender, sex differences. Uh, yeah. So I, I just, I can't say, I, I'd be very interested to see what the evidence is. Of course, you could argue something very different. Um, yeah, right. I, I'm not challenging the claim about brain development because I just don't know anything about it, uh, about that claim. But, but you know, this is goes back to the thing we've already been talking about. Schools should be responsive, responsive. Mm -hmm. It's development. And another yeah. way of looking at it is they need to be in school. If God, COVID taught us that, that since most families are working, uh, it's better for kids to be in school. And if they're going to be in school, and also I'm interested in kids whose parents have to work. That's my greatest interest. Mm -hmm. So given that, I'd rather make schools a place where kids who are who may be very different because of their sex, but for any variety of reasons, they may be different yeah. from one another. School should be a place that not just tolerates their differences, but yeah. makes the most of them. Yeah. And um, if we can't do that, we're screwed. So yeah. I mean, that's why we are a little screwed right now. So yeah. Uh, Doing that should be a top priority for schools. Like, what do we need to do to make this, especially, you know, now that I'm looking at kindergarten, when kids are starting out, and I assume from what you just said that that's what Reeves is talking about, the age at which yeah. start school, preschool, kindergarten, first grade, they have to re be responsive. If they're, and by have to, I mean, if we're going to educate a lot of kids in a way that helps them move on in life. Yeah. Susan, um, uh, so you you sort of straddle obviously psychology, developmental psychology, and teaching. And so I'm curious when you go into these kindergarten classrooms, how much are you looking at the kids and what's happening to mm -hmm. them, and how much mm -hmm. are you looking at what the teacher is doing? Yes, <laughs> uh, both. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm right in the midst of this project, so I'm not going to say too much about um, what I what I'm. Seen, but the answer is I'm seeing everything. And, and I will say uh, for anybody who's going to listen to this and maybe hopefully invite me into their kindergarten, uh, I love it more than I, 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 I love it as much as anything I've ever done. It's so incredible to be in a room with five-year-olds and their grownups. Mm -hmm. And I, mm -hmm. because of what you just said, and I'm grateful to you for the way you describe my work, because not everybody gets that about me. Uh, I'm I'm equally interested in both and in what happens between, so mm -hmm. between teacher and kids. 
I love that so much. And I, I imagine that that this this work, and again, I'm not going to press you to talk more about it, but I imagine that it will be important for you to go into classrooms that practice different pedagogies, right? Like Absolutely. Montessori, Waldorf. Well, standard. I'm only looking at public schools. Um, yeah. I'm very committed to that. Uh, so no Waldorf, but there are some Montessori public schools. There's a lot, and yeah. I've looked at some already. I've okay, been good. to them. I'm grateful to those schools for inviting me in. And, you know, but most schools in this country, uh, it's something I'm going to address in the book about how useful it is and isn't to have one particular model. But but most schools, aside from what should be, I can tell you what is. Most schools in this country, they're a, a hodgepodge, and I mean that as a compliment. They're, they're <laughs> taking a lot of different, you know, techniques and strategies. Different teachers have different approaches. Um the kids, even when teachers aren't trying to be responsive to who their kids are or the school isn't responsive, they sort of have to be ultimately because you have all these dynamic people in the room with you. And whether they're five or they're 15, you can't totally, they bring a lot with them. So so most schools can't be characterized by one specific model, but some can. Some can. So there are an increasing number of of Montessori schools that are public schools. And um, schools also differ a lot in terms of the populations that they're working with. Some are very homogeneous because of the kind of neighborhood they're in. Um, mm -hmm. They're yep. all white, they're all not. They're, they're all Title I or, or, or not, right? Yes, well, to some extent, I'm not actually looking. Yes, yes. And, um, so I'm sort of my original aim was to look for kind of average schools, but there's no average. So, mm -hmm. uh, but I sort of, I'm happy to, because I'm interested sort of in what's happening all over the country and in all the unexpected spots, not the school that gets spotlighted because it's horrible or wonderful, but what are schools like for many kids all over this country? It's a very sort of um, simple, at least at the outset, simple question to be asking. Uh, but yes, I'm interested in a wide variety, and I'm finding a wide variety. Uh -huh. I mean, the country's—it's am amazing to visit this country through this lens. Mm -hmm. Really fun. Mm -hmm. I can just say, in a personal way, it's just really fun. A am I recalling that I saw somewhere that you have a son who started a charter school? Is that? He didn't start a charter school. He start. I do have a son who started a high school within his high school. We wrote a book about okay, it. Okay, right, 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 right. Um, he. Uh, yeah, we wrote a book. It's called um, A School of Our Own. Right, and, right, right. Uh, we, Coming back to me. Yeah. So, and actually, he just went and gave a talk about this in Ohio. There are schools that are using that model. Um, that's for high school, at least so far. Yeah. And the idea is that to, to go back to your point about the difference between a 15 year old and a five year old, you know, high schoolers. Have, need and crave a certain amount of autonomy and uh, schools don't often give them the level of autonomy that they need and crave and his experience my son uh his experience in starting that school and my experience watching it which is what my role was as mom um was that they did their best when they and there's research to back that up by Csikszentmihalyi that when kids are allowed to make some choices about what they're doing they they do much better uh, educationally. 
Yeah, I, I one of the things that I, I think might be counter to um, some of our listeners who are parents um, is the idea that solitude is important for uh, the development of curiosity. Ah. I think that's I think I think that's at center. Um, there's a lot of discussion about loneliness and being alone, and people need people. And when you know when a child is maybe sitting by themselves reading or or honestly even playing a video game, that that's bad. Um, can you can can you shed some light on that? Please. Sure, I'm really glad you brought that up, actually, because talking about COVID, we were very focused on the terrible isolation that kids felt um, and grownups. But you are absolutely right. In, in COVID aside, which seems like a crazy thing to say, but um, uh, we have developed this idea, and I think it may be particularly kind of um, strong in um, in the middle class. Uh, this idea that kids should never just be kind of lying around by themselves. Uh, so there are two parts there. There's the idea that solitude instantly means they're they're lonely or that they're isolated or that they're used they're they're not doing something productive. And what yeah, goes with depressed. that is you, yeah. yeah, depressed. But yeah. most many people crave solitude and almost everyone benefits from some solitude. And also I would say that there's another piece to that, which I, I wrote about in The Hungry Mind, and then even more. So I wrote up another book after that called, um, God, my memory's bad, uh, The Intellectual Lives of Children, that sort of picks up where the curiosity book lets, ends. And it's about how children develop ideas. And in, in researching that book, I really came to understand and understand how research backs this up the importance of sort of free time of in the way that I put mm -hmm. it when I give talks on this is ideas love leisure. So most yeah. people to develop ideas, you need some nothing time, some wandering around time, some, you know, cleaning your nails time. Um, and right. it might be a video game. It might reading a book as not the same as cleaning your nails. I say that right. uh, someone <laughs> right. loves to read, but you could be just reading comic books or you could just, yeah. I mean, and more and more, I suppose a, a question some parents might ask every, every time I give a talk, parents ask me this. What about kids who are like um, scrolling through, in, they don't do Instagram, but whatever yeah. it is kids yes. do. Um, Snapchat, whatever it is. TikTok, yeah, whatever. TikTok, yeah, TikTok's the big one now, I guess. Um, I think again, the jury's out on, on what, the psychological or educational impact of that is but but i do think that kind of wandering around doing nothing and even getting bored even getting so yeah listless and undirected that you um that you finally can't stand it and then you find something to do i think that's very valuable it's trouble is that the context of that boredom really matters. So kids who are bored all the time because they actually aren't getting interesting enough stuff to do at school or have parents who for one reason or another aren't able to sometimes spend time with them doing interesting, fun things, kind of chronic boredom is not good. Yeah. But periodic boredom as a contrast to always doing something productive and valuable and enriching, mm, yeah. yeah, that is good. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think there can be a lot of value in just learning to to be okay being alone at some at some level as well. Um, Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So, so, um, so we have to bring this up. I, you know, in reading, you know, I'm reading the hungry mind, it's, you know, it's a educational book. It's, you've got some anecdotes about your life and there's a lot of research in there. And then Truman Capote shows up. I mean, all of a sudden it's like, wait, 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 Truman Capote was friends with my mom and he used to come and hang out with us. I, can you, I, I mean, can you give, can you give us some more color? So that book is dedicated to the town I grew up in, Sagaponic, yeah. which is um, the word Sagaponic is from the Shinnecock Nation, which that's the original people of, of that area. And um, it means land of the ground nut, which is a potato. Uh, so that was the nut that grew in ground. So I, I grew up on a uh-huh. farm in Sagaponic, uh, which features big in that book. Um, and in the next book, uh, features yeah. big in my life. So, um, and when I was a little girl, like I said, I lived on a potato farm, but it happened that there were a number, a handful of very wonderful writers and artists who lived out there on the East End at that time. Um, mm-hmm. And Truman was one of them, and he was good friends with my mom, and yeah. he he used to come over, and I had the great, I don't remember what I wrote about him in that book, I'm embarrassed to tell you, but well, I can tell you without remembering that he was an amazing storyteller. And some of the times he, I would overhear him tell stories that ended up then being books. So that was. Oh, wow. Yeah. He was, he was, he was featured in the got in the gossip chapter, actually. Oh, see, there you go. Yeah, because yeah. It was a wild gossip. And my mom, who I'm lucky yeah. and still alive, uh, she, she is 98 and she, she wow. loves gossip. And so am I. So, um, I mean, every psychologist is a little bit of a gossip because if you're interested in human beings, you've got sure. gossip. And yeah. I'm a novel reader. And everybody who reads novels likes gossip, whether they admit it or not. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, that's the story. Yeah. Pretty cool. Um, can I take it? I, I want to take us. Uh, first of all, that's crazy. Um, let's yeah, just, yeah. let's just name yeah. it. Um, but um, I want to take us back real quick to, to your world of 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 psychology and I, I i i'm so fascinated by all the thinking that you're doing and all the research that you're doing and um i'm curious about how you would describe the relationship between psych psychology academia and psychology practitioners is it is that a healthy relationship do you all talk a lot um, or is it, do you leave it up to psychologists to just read the research that y'all are putting out? Ah, well, I can't answer this with much expertise because I don't study clinical psychology, but I have three colleagues who do. So our department is made up of developmental psychologists, clinical psychologists, cognitive psychologists, social psychologists, mm-hmm. and scientists. I hope I didn't leave anybody out. I'll get it. <laughs> don't tell Gage McQueen. But um <laughs> But um, so I think some, how will I answer this? I think some researchers, I have a very close friend, she just retired, Lori Hetherington, who studied family therapy as a researcher while she was a faculty member here. Um, And I think she was very interested in doing research that could inform practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not all clinical researchers are focused on informing clinical practice, but, but she was, and I think, and, and the question of whether, whether practitioners read the research in that area is too far out. I just don't know, because I don't know that. I mean, 
I benefit from good therapists, but I don't know uh-huh. much about how that world works. The parallel is in the world of teaching. Teachers don't read research very often because they don't have time. Right. And because mm. very little of it is written in a way that would feel accessible or engaging to them. Um, I have at times been very worried about this and very interested in it. And peri- I, I sometimes write for teachers about developmental psychology because I so want developmental psychology to inform what teachers do, just the way clinician, clinical researchers might want their research to inform what clinical practitioners sure. do. Yeah. But, and, and so it's it's such a complicated question because part of it is making our results accessible and engaging to non-researchers. That's on us. But then part mm. of it is building into the practice, let's say, of therapy or teaching mechanisms for, for making a, giving them a chance and a motivation to read that work. I'm going to, I'm going to bring us full circle. Sorry. No, no, that's, that's a, that's a great answer. It was a pedantic question. It's okay. Oh, which is how he, which is how he rolls. You ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, No, we're, we're actually almost at time and we do have to wrap it up, but, 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 but I know you got one more or two more. Go. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, so I have another friend and colleague who uh, is uh, the president of the Association for College and University Educators. He posted something just yesterday on LinkedIn, and the title of it was Higher Ed Craves Pecan Pie. And the metaphor there of pecan pie is sort of research. So the, the, the piece is about the prioritization in higher ed of research over teaching. Mm. Right. Because status uh, at institutions like Williams and everywhere else um, depends a lot on funding for research mm-hmm. um, and the quality of research and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. publications. Um, and so remember when I asked you at the start, like, how do you spend your time or whatever? Um, do you see that as a problem? I mean, because we just talked also about you're producing research, but mm-hmm. are the practitioners reading the research? Mm-hmm. So uh, like, like, is that on, is that top of mind for anybody in your circle? It's top of mind for everybody. So the reason we started this new Rice Center for Teaching is because we, we hi- we're lucky we hire wonderful young scholars, researchers, pre- literary scholars, every kind of person for all the different fields. But they often don't know that much about how to teach because it wasn't part of how they got to ha- get a PhD and get a job. Right, right. And then... We at Williams were lucky enough to place great emphasis on teaching. So in order to get hired here, in order to get tenure here, you have to be good at both. But finding the balance between them is tricky. The Rice Center here, it's a very local answer to your question, but that's all I've got for you, sure. is to, to, to provide, make the teaching part, give more support for it, make it more fun and interesting to participate in discussions about teaching, to, to sort of, to... Uh, buoy up. I wouldn't say beef up, but maybe they're vegetarians. <laughs> you know, to strengthen that part of what we do so that our faculty get support and energy and sort of time and 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 guidance in attending to that part of their work. Mm-hmm. But I, I will say, and then I'll, I'll answer another question, you know, I don't underestimate the incredible importance to society of the research we do. Mm-hmm. And I, I push back adamantly against the idea that what people do in top level elite colleges is useless or 
pandering to a very select group. Research mm. powers the world and mm. antibiotics and drugs for, for you know, protecting sure. yourself, vaccines and cars that work without gas and voting systems that are more fair. They all, and, and the films we see and the life we lead, I, I do really believe it depends on the production of knowledge. So I, I love us for that. And I yeah, wouldn't yeah. want to, I wouldn't want to demean that in any way. Yeah. We need to do both. Right. Well, and, and, and we have the best jobs in the world, so we should do both. Yeah. And I, I and I don't want to misrepresent my friend Jonathan. Um, and I kind of want to defend him because I think what he's 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 interrogating is the balance. I uh, am with him. Yeah. That's why we started the Rice Center for Teaching here. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Great. So so bringing it full circle, um, you know, I mentioned that we had these five suggestions for for living fully, one of them being living curious. And I and, and I think the energy behind that is um you know, being certain about things um, can be boring, can be scary, um, can be a real issue. And so we want to promote this curiosity. And again, in The Hungry Mind, you say, and there's a line, embrace ambiguity, avoid chaos. Yeah. Um, and I would add, avoid certainty to that as well. So the question I have for both of you is we kind of started this conversation. We were talking about... Um, suckers and scammers and this, you know, and you brought up this idea of Scientology and, and just kind of making sure that, you know, people have this perspective on it. Right. I mean, we all have our beliefs and opinions yeah. and, but if we, if we approach those things, I mean, think about the political arena when yeah. we are in, if we approach these things from a place of curiosity, um, wouldn't that be a better way to go about things? Yes. Uh, but of course, there's uncertainty about different kinds of things. So I like a lot of certainty about my schedule for the day. I can't stand it when things are changed. Um, you know, I always have to look at the menu online. This is a way in which I love technology. I can read the menu before I go to a restaurant and get enough time to really think about what I want to order. Um, but epistemic uncertainty, uncertainty about things and right. what they are, like what's in the ocean or what how a virus is made or what um, what makes Elizabeth Holmes tick. Uh, yeah. So what I would call uncertainty about knowledge, that's a different kind of uncertainty to some degree. Um, and it's, I, it's a great way to end for me. I like this way of ending because I think this is part of what schools can do and what we can all do in our own life, what I try to do, which is cultivate the habit of embracing that kind of uncertainty and it takes yeah. a little determination you have to say wait yes. a minute let me stop and think is there another way of looking at this mm. or what i say to my students is oh you've spent 12 or 15 years trying to show that you're right about things because that's what we train you to do become more and more right in what you know about world war ii or this or that but the great question to ask the truly educated educated question to ask is what would make me wrong and, um, mm. you don't have to end up being wrong. You can end up saying, oh, no, what I thought before is bad and it still mm. convinces me that's true, or my values still convince me that that's true. But in the meantime, you thought, okay, but what would, what would tell me something otherwise? Mm. And that mm -hmm. is so, it's such a pleasurable, it's a great pleasure to think that way, but it's not easy yeah. to do. Like a lot of great pleasures, it doesn't come easily. I agree. So good. So good. 
Uh, Susan, we have to, uh, we're going to give you back, we're going to try to end on time or mostly on time uh, and give you back the rest of your day here. Um, But we have to ask you three canned questions at the end. Okay. Inside the actor studio questions. Uh Are you, are you game? Yes. (laughs) I was trying to think if you told me what the question was. Are you shot? Are you surprised? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> no we i i hope sean didn't take. anyway it's nothing special don't worry um let's 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 kick in here uh what do you wish you could have told your 10 year old self uh slow down and maybe i should tell my 52 year old self that too sometimes um uh, do you have a mantra in life or or a mantra these days slow down well based on what you told us at the beginning you're really not taking that advice i think i mean yeah yeah. right right Uh, that's why she needs to remind herself of that constantly (laughs) okay finally um what do you hope that people will say about you at your wake well um that i did that's a hard one um that i brought them joy so good um you did that for us today yeah for sure thank you you for me too for sure we'll we'll uh we'll let you know um when we need you to come back on to talk about the suckers (laughs) what is it called suckers and suckers and scammers 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 and suckers come first because that's what we'll spend more time talking about i'm so looking forward to that because i i feel like uh i could talk to you forever about anything and 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 have a good time so thank you so much susan it's a pleasure peace take care This is Chris. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of If You've Come This Far. And this is Sean. Remember to check us out at menliving.org.